talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're stepping outside the Marvel Cinematic Universe and into the multiverse for a look at Blade 2, the second of a series of movies featuring Marvel's Vampire Hunter from New Line Cinema, originally released in March 2002. Technically, this placed it somewhere between Typhoid Mary Walker beginning her first tour of duty in the Czech Republic, and Eric Gelden first realising he gets headaches in the presence of evil, and, you guessed it, there's absolutely no crossover with either of them. I'm Tim Worthington, and we'll be finding out what I thought of Blade 2 shortly. Meanwhile, joining me to give her thoughts on Blade 2 is book reviewer Joanne Shepard. Jo, where can people find you? Mainly, people can find me on Twitter, where I'm Red Sky at night. And I also have, as you said, a book reviews blog, which I've recently changed the URL, which was probably foolish because people won't be able to find it anymore. But it's called Breakfast at Libraries now. So it's breakfastatlibraries.com. OK, so before we go any further, Joe, what happens in Blade 2? So Blade is, as we know from the first film, is a sort of half vampire who has a few of the vampire weaknesses. So although he does have a sort of a blood dependence, which he fights off with a sort of serum, he can go out in the day and things like that. And he is dedicated to wiping out four vampires primarily it seems in revenge for killing his mother when he was a baby so in this film there's a plague of a kind of mutant vampire sort of they're all sort of parasitic mutant vampires who are led by a guy called Jared Nomat weirdly played by Luke Goss which is odd Nomat and his sort of mutant cronies are kind of hell-bent on wiping out not only sort of humanity but seemingly the kind of full-blood vampires as well which means that Blade finds himself in a sort of uneasy alliance with the very vampires that are normally his enemies so they can unite to defeat Nomak and his sort of weird parasitic hordes. You know, what could possibly go wrong? Okay, so Joe, how much did you know about Blade before you saw this? Well, as I, as I <laughs> told you before, I had not only not seen any of the Blade films, I had also not seen any Marvel films. So I did not know much about Blade. I did watch the first Blade film before I watched this one. So Blade was my first Marvel film and Blade 2 was my second Marvel film. So I didn't really know much about Blade at all. What I do know quite a lot about, though, is vampires and vampire fiction and vampire cinema because I'm a horror nut and Dracula was the subject of my dissertation at university. Dracula as a character in kind of different literature, film and television, basically. So there were lots of things in Blade and in this film that I was kind of really interested in from that point of view. But the character of Blade and his background, I knew, well, nothing about, really. Yeah, and it is interesting. That, I mean, one thing you said to me while we were discussing this was that Blade sounded like a slightly more interesting character in the comics, and presumably, as he'll be, as we'll come back to when he returns in 
the Marvel Cinematic Universe than he's portrayed in these films. And I think one of the key things for me, I know I mentioned this in the edition about the first Blade film, but the fact that they don't acknowledge he's a jazz musician, those kind of things do make all the difference, really, with characters. In that it gives them that bit of nuance that makes them a bit different to other heroic characters. Like, for example, I won't go into too much detail, one of the reasons the 1989 film of The Punisher didn't really work was that they changed the gender of his children so that it wasn't a man who lost his family anymore. It was a man trying to avenge three dead females, which is a bit different. <laughs> you know, that takes away yes. a lot of the important impetus about that character. But yeah, Blade, really, Wesley Snipes is brilliant. And the films are great, but there isn't that much character to him, especially in this one compared to the first one. Yes, I really picked up on that myself as well, because I think there's at one point where someone says of Blade, oh, Blade doesn't talk much. And I said, well, too right he doesn't. He, he, he barely, he doesn't seem to have any sense of humour, certainly not in this film anyway. And he doesn't, have any, he also just doesn't seem to have any outside interests. I saw there were a couple of times I sort of wanted to say to him, Blade, like, read a book, go go to, <laughs> go and watch the football. Like, go, you know, he doesn't seem to have any discernible character traits other than being sort of gloomy and a bit tortured and taciturn and being hell-bent on wiping out the vampires and avenging his mother. So he doesn't have a lot, certainly not in the films, he doesn't have a lot to him. But then when you told me about the Blade of the comics, I thought he sounded really interesting. Like you say, he's a jazz musician. See, I would love to see Blade kind of playing a few jazz clubs. I want to see Blade like in Ronnie Scott's I would find Blade more interesting if he did have you know any other life beyond vampire hunting I think and if he sort of he doesn't really seem to have any sort of relationships in his life apart from with his sidekick Whistler in the previous film and who returns in this film and Scud who is a sort of a younger guy who helps him build his weapons and his security for him and who reminded me a lot it's Norman Reedus plays him but it reminded me a lot actually of Corey Feldman's character in The Lost Boys so yeah so Blade doesn't really seem to have much in the way of sort of other relationships of other interests he doesn't seem to have much character he doesn't seem to have much sense of humour that said as you say Wesley Snipes is really good in the role I just wish he had a bit more to do other than the fighting really and I would really like to see a kind of a blade in the 1920s fighting Dracula in jazz clubs it could be so atmospheric and sort of so exciting and so kind of yeah I'd really like to see that well that leads into there are a few problems production wise with this we think has some bearing on the fact there isn't a lot of character development and for me and I'll explain why I think this is in a second it's all a bit one note you know it is a really enjoyable film but it's all on the same level throughout even when there's bits of exposition it's like they've said uh, just come over here for a minute what's going on oh yeah right that back to the fighting <laughs> there doesn't seem to be any variance but it's the whole problem this was before you know as I was explaining to you they started the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Marvel were working with other studios and the problem with that is that you're limited to what characters you can use in each film mm-hmm. and apparently initially the plan for this was to have Morbius a living vampire and Sony wanted him for the Spider-Man franchise so that was stymied there were a couple of other characters like Hannibal King who's a vampire who's able to sustain his urges that they eventually used in Blade Trinity but they couldn't use in this for some reason Frank Drake who's a descendant of Dracula who appeared in the very first comic Blade was in Tomb of Dracula they couldn't use him either there were rumours they wanted to use Moon Knight who is a kind of he's a mercenary whose ability and sanity are affected by the lunar cycle and I think they maybe thought that was a bit much but he is coming to Disney Plus soon in his own series but Guillermo del Toro people don't realise this is one of his first films and his first couple are kind of not through his fault really because I mean, famously he was very derogatory about Harvey Weinstein just
just on a creative level long before anything came out. But yes. his first three films or so were a mixed bag. And this, I think, is somebody who has enormous raw talent, but is still finding his feet. But he's still, there's so much invention here. Like, the main thing that struck me was that he was very frustrated by, you know, all the cliches about vampires. And although he liked the way the first Blade film had had them, as you know, as the ravers, the contemporary youngsters, he thought, you know, well, we can't just do that again. So why don't we look in a manga direction? And that's very much what was here. And, you know, the whole thing about having them as the mutated strain, as you say, Luke Goss, is a really interesting way of doing it, I think. He was thinking outside the box, and it's just that he maybe, maybe hadn't quite got to grips with the full mechanics of getting what was in his head onto the screen yet. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Because when I watched the first Blade film, I was disappointed that it didn't feel more like a horror film because I'm a big horror fan I'm not so much a, a superhero fan or a Marvel fan but I am a big horror film and I sort of thought well, I, you know I enjoyed the first one but I, I thought well I'd like sort of more horror in it this one however has a lot of horror in it and loads of nods to other horror films and I really like that and I think there were some very del Toro things in it I thought I really liked the, the sort of horrible lamprey like mouth parts of the mutant vampires really unpleasant and kind of visceral and horrible and also, I mean, we said about raving, I mean, there is a, a bit of a rave scene in this where they go into the club called the House of Pain and there are sort of people being kind of carved up alive like joints of beef, which is sort of really, really unpleasant. But actually, not as, I mean, it's not as, it's so sort of stylized that it's not as horrible as I've made it sound, actually. You sort of think, oh God, what's going on? You know, but it's not kind of hideously grotesque. You know, it doesn't feel that violent in a strange way. I think because it is so stylized, as are all the fight scenes and things. I mean, there is one particular fight scene where I thought this is just like watching a video game when you've got sort of two people kind of standing facing each other kind of moving backwards and forwards and jumping up in the air for sort of no real reason it did feel very much like an old school fighting video game to me and it was all very sort of stylized but I thought visually I found it really interesting there's so many different interesting bits in it that I really liked I'm not sure they all come together that well as a whole maybe that said I mean I did really enjoy the film but like you say it is quite one note there's lots of things in it that don't make a whole lot of sense, but are still very entertaining. And it's almost as if like, oh, let's let that all look cool. Let's put that in. And there's a lot to be said for that, actually, because I think that is one of the things that makes the film really entertaining. There's a bit at the beginning where someone has a sort of a glove with knives on, which is just straight from Nightmare on Elm Street. It's so immediately recognisable as a Freddy Krueger glove that I thought that's a really odd choice. But then there are other bits that really remind me of Alien. It's all quite H.R. Geiger, some of the mutants and sort of the Paris nature of it and yet the sort of vampire overlord Damaskinos who I really liked he's very kind of much more like a sort of traditional gothic vampire and there's an amazing scene where he's sitting in his lair at a sort of gothic carved table eating sort of a blood blancmange which is really <laughs> amazing really brilliant and he looks sort of like he looks like an embalmed corpse he's got that sort of waxy skin like it reminded me a bit of when I went to Moscow I saw Lenin's Lenin's corpse I went into Lenin's mausoleum to see Lenin's and Lenin looks like that. The embalmed Lenin looks like that. It's got that sort of strange finish to his skin. So visually, I thought it was really good. And there are some really good scenes in it that I really liked. And lots of things that I think remind me of elements of other horror films. Also, the mutant strain of vampires. So very sort of, they're quite Nosferatu-ish. Because most of the vampires in this film just kind of look like normal people. Well, normal people, but infinitely more cool than normal people, I suppose. But the mutant strain are all quite 
kind of I mean Luke Goss in this sort of looks a bit like a kind of Uncle Fester with cheekbones he's got sort of dark circles around his eyes and bald and you know he's sort of quite creepy looking much more sort of Salem's Lot kind of vampires I guess and the way that the mutant strain of vampires move they're often sort of they kind of climb up walls like lizards and they're sort of hunched and they move in a really sort of unnatural non-human sort of way and that really reminded me of kind of the Nosferatu style of vampire so there were loads of things in it as I say that I kind of picked up on that reminded me of other horror films it feels almost like a sort of montage of bits and pieces in some ways rather than a coherent whole I think well we've got to get the Luke Goss business out of the way because this is really interesting for a number of reasons the first thing is I've mentioned that here a couple of times Bros are technically part of Marvel continuity because <laughs> there used to be a Marvel UK division who you know they ran reprints of Daredevil Spider-Man things like that the Fantastic Four with their own strips commissioned you know the sort of people who worked on 2018 the rebooted Eagle with yeah. characters like Captain Britain Death's Head the Doctor Who strip was part of all that for a long time but they had at one point in the 80s because they used to do licensed tie-in things as well and bring them into you know their specific UK based continuity there was a Bross strip for a couple of issues and things which is later compiled into its own comic which is actually it was pretty good if you ignore the fact that they themselves are a bit ridiculous it's they sneak out after a gig to get burgers and get caught up in a kind of crime mystery thing and it was actually it was a good strip but that is baffling that you know he would be in this but I did think about the fact that he's in it and I was vaguely aware that he acts but had no idea and I found out he's got this very long career of appearing in a certain kind of film that plays with a certain type of audience you know what would have been the straight to video things in the old days where people got them out to have a laugh on a Friday night and he's you know done dozens and dozens of these films over the years where he always plays like either weird gangsters or a kind of humanoid monster apparently he was in the miniseries of Frankenstein and played the monster and the critics raved over him what exactly but (laughs) how how did i not know this this is incredible i've got to find this immediately i've got to see it but i found an interview with him where he talks about how you know he had ambitions of being you know a great actor but he realized very early on he was very limited and he said to be honest i enjoy doing these kind of films and something along the lines of it's more gratifying if you're in a garage and you know a load of blokes up and say hey you're the fella out of mercenary for justice than just a long career of critic grudgingly saying yeah suppose he's all right if he has to be in it but he should stick to singing cat amongst the pigeons and i've kind of thought good for you he's found enjoyment in something that most people will probably laugh at the idea of him doing it but he's found his niche and he seems to love doing it and he is not bad in this i think no absolutely good for him and you're right i think he is quite good in this as you say he doesn't have i wouldn't say it's a particularly testing role (laughs) no (laughs) he's heavily made up he doesn't have to say much and there isn't much to his character except sort of being evil and a bit kind of repulsive but I do think he's very good in it and he looks because he has got that kind of very sort of high cheekboned chiselled face and very sort of piercing eyes he's really well cast in it really it's odd for me as sort of someone who I mean I hated Bross actually as a kid but they were my kind of first year at secondary school was when Bross kind of hit the big time and became so and I went to an all girls school so I was surrounded by Brossettes and Bross were everywhere so it was a bit I did have to kind of stop thinking of him as Luke Goss but then I imagine for a lot of people seeing that film that wouldn't have been a factor because they wouldn't really have been aware of Luke Goss especially in America they wouldn't necessarily have been aware of Ross particularly anyway or kind of realised who he was but yeah you're right I think he's quite good in this and what you've just said about the rest of his film career makes a lot 
of sense because I think for in a part like this, he's ideal, really. And I was really surprised by how good he was. I also was a bit startled when I saw um, Danny John Danny John here as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Tony Curran, who had not long before that been Lenny in this life, and it's basically yes. just being Lenny in it. Yeah, really odd. I was wondering when Danny John Jules appeared, who again, he's good in it. He's, he's, he plays the role pretty well. And I sort of thought, they just seen him as the cat and thought, oh, he works with fangs. <laughs> <laughs> he works with slicked back hair and fangs. He can be a vampire. <laughs> I was half expecting there to be a bit at the end when the credits rolled of West to Sarah saying, Danny John Jules is currently appearing in Carmen Jones at the London Palladium, like they used to at the end of Red Bull. It was a bit weird to see Danny, I have to say. But yeah, again, perfectly good in it. I just had to stop thinking of him as Danny John Jules. You gotta be kidding me. back a bit when you mentioned that it looks like a video game that is interesting because there was a blade 2 video game which essentially looks the same as the film <laughs> i'll be really? honest about that but the thing that really struck me watching it again was you know the soundtrack obviously it continues the dark hip-hop stylings of the first one but yes. it's got gorillas on my mind by gorillas and it reminded me how despite how gorillas have evolved since how big they were just with proper hip-hop acts you know yeah. they've got proper legends to appear on those first couple of albums and it was just interesting to be reminded of that given that right now Damon Albarn's just about a solo album where a lot of people are saying yeah wasn't really taken by it but at least you never know what he's going to do next and it was quite kind of pleasing to be reminded of this at the same time as that was happening. I really liked the soundtrack actually I, I really enjoyed the soundtrack overall which I hadn't expected to when I started watching the film but I really liked the soundtrack and I think it works really well. For Damon Albarn for me because I live although I don't sound like I do because I live in Manchester for some reason <laughs> repeatedly at the Manchester International Festival the arts festival that we have every other year invariably there seems to be some sort of opera written by Damon Albarn <laughs> there was one about Dr John D Elizabeth the first kind of mystic physician I think there was one that might have been based on monkey sadly not the tv series which would have been brilliant but it wasn't that and yes for me Damon Albarn is just sort of a fairly tedious person <laughs> that kind of invariably turns up at the Manchester International Festival doing something I'm not interested in going to see. So it was quite nice to be reminded of gorillas. <laughs> As you say, like really like huge huge at the time. One of the things that really struck me about this is that there are a lot of very sort of typical vampire things in this. Although I think that probably the Blade films are films that like to think that they're reinventing vampires a bit. But actually, there are a lot of things that crop up in this, in a lot of vampire fiction. And one of them is the fact that there's an awful lot of things that can kill them. <laughs> And this sort of happens in Hammer, in the Hammer vampire films a lot. It's like, well, right, so Silver Bullets, which isn't really a proper vampire thing, but seems to be able to kill them in a lot of films. Garlic, Sunlight. And at this point, I was sort of thinking, like, God, they're really easy to kill. I don't really see what the problem is. <laughs> and it's a bit like that in the Hammer Dracula film. In the first one, you can only kill him with sunlight or a stake through the heart. And then by the end of the Hammer vampire films, it's like Hawthorne running water. <laughs> like, you know. <laughs> You can polish him off 
with anything because that was one of the things that I noticed in this. The other thing I always find odd, which happens in a lot of kind of vampire fiction, is that the notion that vampires would have a kind of like why I don't see why vampires would be so into kind of governance. <laughs> I don't understand why they've got such a sort of a strict hierarchy yeah. with a top vampire who's kind of like the boss. I don't understand why that would be. It's like they're confusing vampires with like Freemasons. <laughs> so all of that is a bit like I always find that quite sort of quite pompous the notion that vampires would have <laughs> sort of a vampire overlord and minions and a whole like a vampire council and vampire courts and things because I just think like you know I think vampires are probably I always think of them as being a bit more kind of free-spirited and independent-minded than that it is making me think of some of the current Tory administration in a different light though yeah yeah very much like that I imagine that Johnson enjoys a blood blancmange of a thing he's there or Rhys Mogg certainly well as you alluded to earlier the interesting thing about this because there was only one more film in the franchise which is Blade Trinity and by then they were more or less heading towards the first proper Marvel Cinematic Universe film the first Iron Man film there has been speculation for a long time about what they were going to do with Blade when the rights eventually reverted to them there was talk at one point of Guillermo del Toro who said he was approached to do the first Thor film and credit to him here he said he had one meeting where it became evident to him that he wanted to do it you know in kind of a more Lord of the Ringsy kind of way and they were thinking well really it's got to be you know like a superhero costume drama and he thought I'm not a good fit and eventually it went to Kenneth Branagh who did a brilliant job and Wesley Snipes at one point was discussing possibly returning as Blade with them but the rights negotiations went on so long that that was never really an option but they did announce in 2019 that Mahershala Ali it was part of the comic con panel that year it was a surprise announcement he'd been cast as Blade with no announcement of a Blade film and you know the usual practice is to bring characters in in other things and have been a lot of speculation about where he'd show up first I mean my theory was always they've said all along the next Doctor Strange film is going to be more of a gothic horror theme thing and I thought well that's ideal for him to turn up in literally between you messaging me about this asking some questions and me replying I went to see Eternals and I'll be careful how I say this but in the post credit scene I think it's fairly common news now that this particular thing happens but a character that comics fans would have known the name of goes towards a mystical artifact I'm giving nothing more away than that because I'm sure some people are still waiting to watch it on Disney Plus Blade appears and says are you sure you're ready for that Mr. Stroke Mrs and it was such a lovely surprise for that to happen because nothing had leaked about that it does lead to the question of where Blade's actually going to properly first turn up but what excellent timing that was and I love the fact he's been cast as Blade because he is tremendous and they've got the interesting fact that he's already been in Luke Cage as a villain in that so how they're going to deal with that will be interesting as well but I wonder what you thought of his casting I think it's a brilliant bit of casting and I really I would be all over that film when it comes out because I think he I think he's got exactly the right face if that makes sense do you know what I mean I think he's got he's got really striking kind of facial features and I think like great though Wesley Snipes is in Blade I have to say he is he's great in the role but he's quite I don't think he's that interesting to look at if that makes sense I think Salt and Pepper would disagree with you (laughs) 
yeah, sorry, sorry, Wes, I feel bad now. <laughs> and he was a huge star at the time as well. But yeah, I think it's, I think it'd be really interesting casting. I think he'll be great. And I would really love to see a proper kind of gothic horror blade. I'd love to see that with a bit more atmosphere to it and a bit more like what, I mean, I've obviously not read the comics, but from what you've told me about Blade's character in the comics, I would really like to see a Blade who was a bit closer to that and was a bit more interesting. And yeah, I'd be all over that. And I'm, I'm now quite excited. OK, well, there's only one thing left for me to ask now. Joe, Tony Curran, who was priest in this, as in the character called Priest rather than a priest, <laughs> was Finn Cooley in Daredevil in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Now, I'm about to ask you which was best, but I think I'd better explain. Finn Cooley in the comics is a very complex character. He's an ex-IRA man who half his face got blown off and he relocated to New York with a plastic mask holding it in place and seems to revel as much in causing chaos as he does in organised crime. And there's a huge thorn in the side of the Punisher in particular. In Daredevil, he was a shouty Irish man with Tony Curran's face. So essentially the same character <laughs> as in Blade 2. So who was best? <laughs> I think I'm liking the sound of Finn Cooley a lot more. I, I want my characters to have half their face blown away and to be held together with a plastic mask. That's right up my street, that. No spoilers, but he was last seen with half his face being blown away, so maybe he'll come back on that basis. Fingers what crossed. Lo- what, a lovely note to- <laughs> what a lovely note to end on. Yeah, wishing, hoping a man's face is blown away. Fantastic. <laughs> Joe, thank you, and Excelsior. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can buy more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.